Hello and welcome to the Motor Mouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. Did you know that Motor Mouth is on Patreon? Yes, you can support your favourite podcast if you want. And in return, we've got some great goodies and bonus content to give you. Just search Motormouth Official on Patreon, where there are three levels of membership. Become a Motormouth Companion for just £5 per month with our eternal thanks, early access to all podcast episodes, ad-free. If you fancy going for £7.50 per month and becoming a Motormouth Associate, that means you can ask your own questions to our guests as well as enjoy ad-free early access to every single podcast. And if you're an absolute Motormouth legend and want to do £10 per month, you will get an official Motormouth baseball cap, a personal thank you on the actual show from us, and everything else, including ad-free early access and the opportunity to ask a question. Just search Motormouth Official on Patreon or follow the links in the detail of this podcast. Your support means everything to us and keeps us going, so thank you. Before we kick off with today's guest we have a brand new sponsor for season five it feels like kind of a momentous day for us sponsors are totally vital for our survival and ensure we can continue to bring you interviews with the biggest names in racing so this episode of the motormouth podcast i am absolutely delighted to say is sponsored by the lovely team over at motus one a company i've had the pleasure of working with on many occasions If you or your company require event transportation, Dana and his team at Motus One have you covered anywhere in the world. From a single chauffeur-driven sedan to a fleet of luxury SUVs, even Teslas or motor coaches. They provide world-class service to ensure your transportation requirements are totally and utterly seamless. You might be an events management company that needs cars and drivers to transport your VIPs. You might be a venue that needs to transfer talent or a brand that sponsors an event. Maybe you're a team or a major sporting spectacle, including Formula One and Formula E. It doesn't matter. You can find your transportation solution with Motus One. With offices all over the world, including the Middle East, Europe and Africa, they can support your transportation needs regardless of location. Motus One is committed to world-class service at the best rates to ensure your event goes without a hitch. Contact them at motusone.com. We'll put all their social links in the podcast description. And a huge, huge thanks to Dana, their CEO and founder, to have faith in our show and join us for season five. Now, on with today's episode. This week, as we kick off season five of the Motormouth podcast, I know, where has the time gone? But I think this may just be our best season yet. We've got an absolute treat of a series lined up for you too. And we're kicking off today with none other than eight-time Formula One race winner. He's had his fair share of teammate battles too. He's even stood on the podium at Le Mans. He's no number two driver. This week's guest is Mark Webber. Thank you so much to you guys who continue to download and listen. If you like it, please do leave us review it really helps us to get bigger and enjoy welcome to the motormouth podcast my name's tim sylvie but before we introduce today's guest i need to head across to the english county of essex which did you know is rumored to be the birthplace of robert the bruce yes many believe that the great scottish hero was in fact born at montpellier farm in rittle near chelmsford in 1274 and you thought i was done with my essex based facts however we're not here to indulge in my otherworldly historical knowledge of the uk's most tanned city we're here in this opening segment to introduce my co-host Harry Benjamin, how are you? Wow, thank you, Tim. I really thought you dried up all, all the Essex facts possible. So I like to think everybody knows that I do live in Essex now. So um, if you need to contact me, just search for Essex and you won't be that far away. Um, I'm very well. Thank you, Tim. Um, I had a holiday planned and had to cancel it again because of hashtag tier two. Very yeah. upset about that. Yeah. But powering on, back in the mini studio. It's good to be back in kicking off season five. Yeah, absolutely. I managed to squeeze in my short uh, staycation. Mm. Uh, Turkey went out the window. Dubai disappeared and we ended up in Norfolk getting wed. But there we are. That's uh, the, the perils of COVID. Anyway, enough of our rambling. Shall we introduce today's guest? Yeah, let's do it. So today could well be the biggest day in Motormouth podcast history. We've had Buemi, Coulthard, Chandock, Hartley, Cassidy, Rob Smedley. We've had Pinkham, Crofty, Brooks, Connor Daly, to name a few. But today, listeners, we have a nine-time Formula One Grand Prix winner, a world endurance champion, surely one of the biggest names in global motorsport history, who is now part of the Channel 4 commentary team covering Formula One. It's our honour and pleasure to welcome Mark Webber to the Motormouth podcast. (laughs) Tim, Hazza, 
Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Mark. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I always love it when uh, we, we talk to people and they position it so, so lovely in their little Zoom window that you see all their trophies in the background. It's very, uh, it's, a, it's a nice, a well, nice view for yeah, us. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit over the top. I'm not here much actually, um, and I don't have at uh, whether it's Australia, whether it's. Uh, in Monaco, where I spent some time, whether it's UK, I have no, no trophies on display, and this room actually does. So, um, yeah. But, <laughs> well, so uh, where are you now? Yeah, I'm actually in the UK at the moment, but going to okay. Monaco. Yes, back to back to back to base. Nice. Well, so tell us, obviously from Australia, growing up, what, what was it like in your formative years? Where did you spend the majority of time, and, and for that racing bug, when did it hit you? Yeah, look, mate, I was really lucky. Um, I grew up in a in a country town, actually, so very rural which was important for my passion because uh, that meant I could ride motorbikes from a young age. So um, my dad had a very small motorbike dealership and two petrol bowsers um, out the front of his workshop there. So he used to pump fuel and um, sell motorbikes and leathers and helmets and gloves and, and all the rest of the stuff that come with that. So, um, yeah, I was very lucky to grow up in a in a very big sporting community because sport was important for, for, for Queenbeard near Canberra. Um, that's where I grew up. And, yeah, we had... A bit of a hobby farm as well on the weekends, which we used to go and use the toys. So for me to drive trucks and tractors and motorbikes and go karts and all that stuff at a really young age was was uh, I thought it was well, I knew it wasn't normal, but it was actually I really did take it for granted knowing that um, just having that space and room, um, which we have so much of in clearly in Australia, as you know, it's mm. a bit different than the UK. But um, yeah, so that was really cool. Um, and so from si- age of six, I suppose, on motorbikes through to, to 12 when I started to get the bug really, really aggressively that I thought I wanted to compete. And yeah, the rest is history. Was there anything in, in your family which sort of spurred you on to do it or was it completely you just liked the look of it? Dad loved uh, single-seater racing. So um, he used to hitchhike to Warwick Farm, which is around a three-hour hitchhike up to watch um, Jimmy Clark and Jack Brabham and, and Jack, Jackie Stewart in the, in the Tasman series. Um, they used to come down down under in the, in the in the winter, their summer, to race in New Zealand and Australia. So that was a really a big bug mm. in a healthy way for my dad because he he was fascinated with these, these heroes that raced the cars in the 60s and 70s. And, but that's it. You know, um, no, my dad never competed. Um, he's a good driver, but uh, yeah, but he never, um, yeah, he never raced. So I, I was the first cab off the rank, and um, that was it. I was happy I'm not a son of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, I suppose a lot, a lot of people uh, don't really like that brush. I suppose it's two sides of that. Uh, what's yeah. the word? Uh, lesser of two evils, I suppose. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. Great. What What was the Australian racing scene like in the in the junior categories in the nineties when you're working your way up through the sport? Was it a, Was there a big scene there? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, pretty light, mate. To be honest, the go karts. I mean, it was competitive, but pretty thin fields. Like it was. It was. I had to travel, of course. So you know, it was, it was all well and good being a bit of a legend in your, your own backyard. But you know, the go kart track, which was thankfully only you know about five kilometres from the workshop, that was another fluke in itself. So that was that was positive. But I, I quickly became quite competitive locally. So you need to travel um, and and race at bigger events in Sydney and Melbourne and whatnot. But I was quite big for karting as well. I was I did have a bit of a growth spurt, which was very frustrating. I was probably the only guy in the world that wanted to be a short ass. Um, but, um, so, and, uh, I did for my whole career want to be a short ass and be lighter than it was, but it, it wasn't the case. Does, does but how tall are you? Yeah. Oh, now I'm 108. Well, now when I say, well, then I was whatever I was, 12, 13, too tall. Yeah. Um, and now I'm 183 centimeters. So now I'm fine with it. Of course. Like I'm happy to yeah. be, well, guess what? I've got no friggin' choice about it. Any. <laughs> it, is, it is what it is, boys. But, um, so yeah, I travelled. Um, Mark, ha- how how much of an impact does that have at, at karting at that stage? Because I've had this age old argument with my wife, who claims she's a better karter than I am, and I'm like, well, that's just because you weigh nothing. Can I stand by that argument, or am I onto something? You can, else? but you're going to have to tell me how much your wife weighs. Well, she's probably like uh, she she won't listen to this, so I don't care. She's probably about oh god in kilos. I don't know. She's five. She, she's slim and five foot. Six. Okay. So I say she's got a, sixty kilos, something like that. Yeah, mid fifties, yeah. fifty, sixty kilos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what do you weigh? So I weigh. Oh God, it's bloody kilos. So I, I, I'm thirteen stone twelve, whatever that is in kilograms. Yeah. 
Okay. So yeah, you're definitely heavy though. We know that. that so yeah. it's not going to help. Yeah. So um, yeah, no go karting. Also, my size and just the way it was. It mm. is, it's, uh, as DC would call it, it's a it's a it's a mini man sport in yeah. many ways. Um, and David has a phobia with short people. He really <laughs> short men. Short men. He struggles with short men. Short racing drivers. He really loves taking the, the piss out of. But um, <laughs> fair. Um, but uh, anyway, that's what it was, mate. I uh, I had to do with that. That was my passion. Yeah. I loved it. You know, every day I woke up and wanted to to compete and race. And um, you know, the size. When I got then into car racing, it was much easier for me to be more competitive because mm. um, casting was. <clears throat> And also, Dad was pretty clever. Like he didn't spend a fortune now. Not that he had a fortune, but he had a little bit more to spend on Formula Ford in, in Australia, which is still answer your question there, buddy. In terms of the, the Formula Fords, was quite quite popular again. It was on national TV. We had like forty car grids at the big races, which was great. Um, so yeah, that's what we did. Um, and, was, and I raced Australia for a few years, and then I came to Europe. Was, was and was Formula One the the goal? Was that in sight from the beginning? I think, oh, of course, mate. I mean, I watched. A lot of it, they were my heroes, yes. Um, delusional that it was ever going to happen. Like, if you knew where I grew up, um, you know, it's just when the odds were ridiculous, it was never going to happen. But, you know, I, I you know, just took each literally, it's, it's a very, you know, it's cliche ish, but, um, you know, every, every mm. little hurdle in, a, in, in my path has gave it 100% and, and didn't really take no for an answer. I didn't really have a plan B, mate, to be honest. It was just like, this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until I started to win in Europe that I believed that I was a chance of making Formula One. I mean, you can do well in Australia, but you know, you need to you need to be doing well in Europe to actually start to cut the mustard. How did you find that move to Europe? You're obviously you know you're, you're Aussie grit. We know that you're you know you're a pretty um, tough, straight talking character. But at, at that age, at that point in your career, how was it the move mentally for you? Did you find that an easy thing, an easy transition to do? And did you come over on your own, or were you supported? Yeah, um, well, I come over on my own to a, to a degree, and my my wife now she was with me as well, but she was back here anyway. So I was really from from my immediate family. Yes, I was I was on my own. Um, and look, I think that it's all relative when you're when you're because people talk about oh, all the sacrifices you made. I didn't make any sacrifices. I didn't see like what was what was the other other option. The other option was you know work at dad's workshop or. Uh, do something else. I mean, you know, curriculum for me was a challenge because I love my sports. I was, I was, I was mischievous. I was, I was pretty loose at school, um, and I didn't have too many other back, uh, you know, fallbacks. So for me to to come to Europe, it was like this is this is awesome. This is phenomenal. You know, I've just flown the other side of the world, and I'm going to try and race cars here. And and yes. You know, you know, naivety is bliss, mate. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know. You know, it's great. You know, if you look back now, you're like, shit. What was I thinking? You know, it was, it was mental, mental. How optimistic I thought I was, but you know, the weather's tough, the long winters, whatever. Blah, blah, you know, but is it a catastrophe? No, crack on. Um, so yeah, it was. It was. I had to be quite matter of fact about that period for the first year and a half and I got back to Australia at some points because I couldn't afford to you know, go to and fro but you know, I went back there a little bit homesick just saying oh you know maybe I can how can I do this from living from Australia like absolutely no chance of course <laughs> but in your head you're trying to think maybe it's maybe I'm the first guy that can do it like this and it's never going to happen yeah. you've got to you've got to be fully immersed over here and, and that was mm. the end I went back for Australia for, I was supposed to go back for two weeks I think I was back there five days and thought everyone's in the same spot doing the same thing and I've got to get back over there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that, I guess yeah. the 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 competitive side of things in Europe is obviously going to be higher than it was was in Australia. When, when you came over and you started racing over here, were you thinking, "Oh crap, the, these guys are good," or were you immediately on the pace? Uh, well, the depth was it was just a lot more. It was just a lot more competitive. Yes, the the ultimate. The ultimate lap time was probably a little bit more competitive. Yes, it was, it was certainly a bit stronger. Um, but the way they raced, the, the depth of the field, it wasn't just the top five. It was like now we're talking the top 15, top 20 were really, really, really handy. Um, so the penalty for mistakes, the penalty for, you know, missing attempt in qualifying, it wasn't that you were, you know, fourth on the grid, you were 10. Um, so it's all those things, mate. Yeah, so it's, it's basically the, 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 the stakes just got, just kept ramping up and getting higher and higher. 
Mm. Now, in the build-up to uh, Formula One, a, a lot of people obviously, and you've reaffirmed it there, so the, moving to Europe is quite critical to, for that uh, and racing. And and from your you know your career stats, you sort of followed the, the the usual route, except you also raced in sports cars before Formula One. And actually, that's sort of being commonplace now, as that's the thing that a lot of Formula One drivers go off and do after their Formula One careers. Yeah. So what was that sports car journey like for you pre-Formula One? And, and how do you look back on that? Obviously, we had the, you had that notorious crash in, in the Mercedes car, which completely flipped. Uh, talk us about the sports car experience. Well, mate, that was really... My, my hand was forced on that one, to be honest, because I was doing Formula 3 at the time. And um, I just won the, the Formula 3 race in, in Brands Hatch. Um, and we had no real sponsors on the car. I was sponsored by Yellow Pages in Australia. Remember them, Yellow Pages? Oh, yeah, they were the days. Remember those, mate? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so they were sponsoring me. Um, Dad put a little bit in, but after four races, we had no money left. We were done, finished, because we had to buy the car and the engine, and, of course, you know, and I hadn't had any crashes, but I was just, you know, we were third in the championship, I think, and it was Jackie Stewart's team with the business. You know, Jackie had these ballistic engines from Honda, which was awesome, uh, which I still wind him up to this day about. Um, but in terms of um, the sports car situation, so I had a phone call from Norbert Haug, who was the boss of Mercedes-Benz Motorsport at the time in Stuttgart and uh, at the house in Aylesbury, um, and he said that, what, how did this work? So, yeah, Gerhard Berger was ill, I think, or, yeah, Gerhard was ill. Alex Wirtz was the test driver for Benetton. Alex was racing this Mercedes sports car. So there's this sequence of events where people had to move up one slot and naturally, I had to move up 18 slots. It's like, well, mate, what are you ringing me for? Like, I'm doing Formula 3 now. I was doing Formula 4 six months ago, and now you want me to drive this CLK, you know, friggin' V12, 7.4-litre, 680-horsepower weapon. I'm like, well, mate, this is a bit early, I think. Um, but we kept conversation going, and I said, look, I'd love to do a test, and I'd love to stay in touch. I mean, clearly, it was a great opportunity for me. But it was, a, it was a, a bit of a fork in the road where financially it was very good for me, not in terms of my you know, back pocket, in terms of them paying me. It was, it was, it was a horrendous contract in, in terms of my, 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 my financial situation, but I was being paid, which was phenomenal. You know, I didn't have to bring sponsorship to a team and they were happy to pay for the rest of my Formula 3 season, which was sensational. So that was a very, very big leg up from, from, from what um, you know, Mercedes did for me there, and that was brilliant um so i went to do sports cars um i learned a lot off Bern schneider who was an absolute legend i did a lot of tie testing for bridgestone you know all these basic things um that you you you, you i had exposure to at that age was tremendous for my formula one career because i had to learn you know of course from formula three to those types of that type of technology using um, telemetry all those type of things were was great so it was in in essence it was a it was a very very productive move for me financially to have to not find any more sponsorship anymore because I only had to find sponsorship for basically 16 months in Europe. So I did the first year wow. of Formula 4 and then I had, I had, I was, I was off the hook uh, in, in, in May in my, in my second season in Europe. So otherwise it was, of course, all over. I mean, we did not yeah. have, we didn't have the firepower, probably to well, who knows. But um, well, you you had one of your one yeah. of your sources of funding. Um, we read was through a man who I despised. I'm not afraid to say it in my teens because he was the guy who terrorised uh, the England rugby team's backline. Yeah, you, you, fantastic you, stuff. Oh, yeah. hey, honestly, it, he, I don't know that man. It, he tormented me. David Campesi. What, what's the relationship yeah. with him, and how did he help? Um, well, he grew up in the same town that I grew up in, in Queenbian as well, so my father knew him. And I remember driving my B-Ridge 1.1 Fiesta to Heathrow, parking up out the front, just steaming in, knowing the Wallabies were flying back to Australia. You know, finding Campo, I had a little sponsorship proposal and said, mate, you know, can you keep the dream alive somehow? Because he's a guy, you know, he's mercurial, he's, he's, he's clearly, you know, well before his time, he was a visionary with his own sport in terms of professionalism and yeah. you know stretching and fitness, and that's why he just it was he was so good at what he did uh, in that period. He went amateur to pro, and he was pro all the time. So he flew home that long flight back to Sydney, and when he landed, he said, "Yeah, I'll give you a, a bit of sponsorship," which was awesome, you know. And we've enjoyed a great relationship to this day. Uh, clearly, I paid him back, um, and it was it was a yeah. So they're the type of characters which, because they've been in the arena, they know what you're trying to do. Um, and that gave me a sense of purpose and energy too around having someone that was, it was a friendly yes, but it was also someone that had been, that had an illustrious career 
And there was just even more at stake for me to deliver, having someone showing the, the belief he has in me, but I had to go out there and, and deliver in his style too, you know, make sure I made my presence felt. Mm. And you clearly delivered enough in your junior career to warrant that Formula One opportunity, which came about in 2002 with Minardi. Uh, how did that present itself? How did it all come together? Well, it was actually Eddie Jordan that introduced me to Paul Stoddard. So I was hassling Eddie for a test drive in uh, in 99, 2000, around there, because um, Damon was coming to the end of his career as well. I'm just like, Eddie, just give me a run in something. Just give me a drive, you know. And Eddie was... You know, he was he was great. Uh, he was frustratingly great because it was hard to get through to him. But I think one day I even tried to follow him in the car, tried to follow him to a petrol station and basically just, you know, just smash him when he got out of his car at a petrol station and tell him to give me a chance. So um, I did stalk him out for a while um, and got, you know, beat his PA basically. Bless her. Um, yeah, it was super um, her name passes me right now, but she wanted to do great things as well, which is typical Eddie. A lot of the people that work with him at the time are doing great things now. But um, yeah, so Stoddy, I got introduced to Stoddy, and then he um, he gave me the chance to drive the Formula Three Thousand car, um, and I did Formula Three Thousand and and, and, and raced out with him, and then it all went full circle back again to to having the opportunity to Stoddy saying, "Well, we've got a we've got a seat in F one, but it's only for two races." It's like, well, hang on. Okay, well, of course. I mean, I've got no cards on the table here. Yes, of course I'll do it. Because um, Stoddy was just desperate for funding. He needed sponsorship from the drivers, and they were the worst team on the grid, as we know, in terms of performance. Mm-hmm. Not in terms of culture and passion. It was awesome. But So I did Melbourne, and that went really well, obviously, um, and finished in the top five. And there was old points back then, not like they hand them out now for everyone just to finish you know, 10 laps behind and get a point. But, um, <laughs> you know, so, um, you know. <laughs> I um yeah, mind you, I did get lapped, I did get laughed a lot that day, by the way. But um yeah, so it was it was um a tremendous day, and Stoddy said, "Look, you can drive the rest of the year." So I think that that performance obviously you know gained him several million pounds um, mm. in terms of sponsorships, and that was enough. What what was the uh, obviously driving a Formula One car? I expect is a very visceral experience. The, the first time you sat in an F one car in those early two thousands, or it may have been before. What, what was it like? Can you sort of remember the feelings that you were going through? Yeah, Tim, it's just it's just the weight, the power to weight is the biggest thing. You just you've just never driven anything like like it before. Just knowing how, you know, you've still got the every, the seating position is very similar to to a to a former three thousand car, which at the time was a step below Formula One. Um, even though in Formula Three Thousand, then you had a gearbox, so you had three pedals, so you had a you had a clutch on the floor, not on the steering wheel. Um, so that's the first thing you got to get used to. Is, is having the clutch up on the steering wheel and then two pedals left foot brake and, and not to the throttle. But ergonomically, it's a, it's not a big departure from what you're used to, but you you just leave the pits and you're like, and you just feel like this thing is just, it just weighs nothing. It's just so light and the power is immense. So you just having to, the frame rate of you, you know, the, the calibration of accepting the new speeds are, uh, you know, the first half an hour is a real insult on your on your senses. You know, you just got to really get used to, um, and that's before you've even touched the brakes. You know, and trying to get this car on the limit and and up on its tippy toes is not easy. But um, I think that you, at that point, a lot of people have driven F1 cars. Well, a lot of people have tried. You know, professional professional guys have got to that point. But I really do think that how you lock onto those things in the first two or three hours often can still be it can make or break you mm. you have to you have to try and strap this thing on your back and you've got to try and be in charge as quick as possible and i think a lot of people can't do that mm. it's just something it's just it's just quite overwhelming they never quite get ahead of the car yeah. it's always the car is ahead of them but if you get ahead of the car then you start to be in charge of it then you can start to give correct feedback and then you start to get on the right curve of what I'm actually doing here. Because if you come in just punch drunk going, you know, how was the run, mate? What was I like to do with the car? It's like, well, actually, but the car's still driving me. You know, I've got no idea really what I'm, you know. So it's, they're big moments to drive an F1 car for the first time, mate. Yeah, huge moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I suppose that's why there are, well, to this day, there are only 20-odd drivers that make it to uh, the grid each year. It seems criminal to skip over parts of your Formula One career, but there is so much. No, um, I mean, you can't. <laughs> Crack on. 
and we can buy your book as well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, well, you you went on from Minardi, you joined Jaguar, and then you moved over to Williams, two, you know, big stalwart manufacturer teams, great history. And then 2007, Red Bull come knocking. Um, What was the Red Bull journey like? Obviously, that was where you spent, I suppose, the majority of your Formula One career. How did it all kick off? When did those first talks happen? It was actually, uh, yes, yeah, so the middle of 06 mm. that um, things were starting to, to slide away at, at Williams in terms of the relationship and, and I wanted to, to go somewhere different. Um, and I think they wanted me to leave as well. Um, so between <laughs> the pair of us, it was, it was, uh, it was just, uh, you know, time, time to, 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 to finish the marriage. Um, mm. And I think they had two new drivers actually in, in 07, Williams did. I think, I think Vertsy might, Alex might have went there. I'm not sure. Anyway. Um, but Red Bull, which was a big, you know, well, sort of a risk because, you know, DC had been there for a little uh, a little phase already. Adrian knew he was there, which was clearly important. Um, and, and, and a lot of us were still not aware of, of Dietrich Matajic's vision on this one. We didn't really see where the, the tail of this great journey was going to be with Red Bull, but we... Well, when I say we, Flavio Briatore, Flavio City, went, these these guys are going to do it properly, um, and and also, man, I didn't have a huge amount of options to be honest. It was like, yeah, it looks it looks cool. I need a refresh. Like I actually, I was I wasn't really enjoying my work um, anymore uh, as much as I, I believe I should have been. Um, and then I went there, and it's like, my God, this is like such a breath of fresh air. And I really started to enjoy it, and um, so yeah, and then and then. It just kept the culture, the the sort of we jagged a few podiums, and then it just kept improving the scenario. When the regulations come, Adrian's way, he could design a car around the terms that he wanted as well. Mm. Um, and that could was, you sense the the success and the vast success that was to come when you first joined? No, I think that was. I mean, we had they, they head hunted well. I mean, they had a lot of individuals in there that's had had great success and winning world championships from design through to operational in the pit lane, through to strategy, through to, you know, lots of, uh, lots of uh, key positions. The pillars of those were born out of a good, a good recruitment process. But uh, as we know, you know, putting a bunch of individuals together is, is, is fine. You've got to then glue that together and, and, and have that consistently, you know, born out and, and design a brilliant racing car, a reliable racing car, the best racing car in the field. So, um, I think we all, you know, I mean, we look back now and say, yeah, that's that's how Red Bull do things. They are basically the best they have been and are, and are the, the best in the in, in the segment, whatever they do, whether it's athletes or whether it's, you know, with Formula One team or lots of things, that surfing, whatever. They've done mm. so many extraordinary things um, and the brand grew with F1 in parallel, right? It was like it was, it was together. So that was... Bloody awesome. Yeah, it's an incredible brand. And like you say, the brand grew with it. I think that was a classic, a really good case of successful Formula One sponsorship. A quick interruption of the show to remind you to check out our Season 5 podcast sponsors. Motus One, the event transportation company. Motus One is the industry leader in complex transportation management. From hospitality, talent, production crews, VIPs and artist transportation, Motus One's team have you covered. They've also just launched their leading-edge cloud-based event transportation management system, Motus Ride. Now you can manage your entire event transport program digitally, making bookings, allocate rides, create approval processes, see reports, track costs, and loads more. Head over to motusone.com and hear how they can support your event transportation needs. But now listen, there's obviously a lot of interesting um, aspects to your Red Bull career, some of which we'll, we'll touch on shortly in the next segment. But first, I would like to introduce you to a very important moment in the podcast. And you may have won nine Grand Prix. We know all that, but this is your highlight. This is the one. I will hand over to my illustrious colleague to introduce you to the Motormouth Quiz. Yeah, it's going to be disappointment from here, Mark. Um, so this is the hardest quiz in motorsport. It's called Motormouths. We have got four clips for you that we're going to play you. They're all to do with you and your career, and you simply have to say or hear what you see and hear. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions after each clip, uh, and, it's, and it's what, where, and when, basically. At the moment, the leaderboard is about 40, 40 notches long. 
Um, and Dilbag Gill, the boss of the Mahindra team, is actually at the top at the moment, 14. Uh, I think you're going to want to beat people like Brendan Hartley. He's in third right now, 12 and a half points. Uh, we've got, um, uh, where's uh, Mr. Sebastian Buemi's in 17th. David Coulthard, 10 points, uh, 20th position, though. It's, it's, oh. really, it's a competitive leaderboard. So if you can get, I'd say, I think, well, let's aim for 10, and then, then you can beat DC, and then anything Beautiful. above that. So how many questions are there? There are four questions and oh, one four, bonus. Right. Each question uh, is worth three points and the bonus question is worth one point. Are you ready to hear your first clip? Yeah. Okay. Play it, Tim. Here it comes. Going to retirement. Okay. So what's going on there, Mark? Yeah. So I'm vomiting in my helmet. I'm in Japan. <laughs> Fuji. Uh, oh, eight. Oh, yeah. oh, wait. Oh, set. Oh, yeah. uh, okay. And I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that one. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. three points in the bag. There were so many. We, we put out on our, our Instagram um, people to us uh, some fans to ask you questions. So many people <laughs> want to know what it was like chucking up in your helmet while doing a Grand Prix. Yeah, it was pretty average. Um, <laughs> I, I had, um, I had, well, food poison the night before. Um, and I even. Before I went to bed, my tummy was getting a bit, mm. bit tired. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And then like three or four or five in the morning, I'm like, I'm up. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's on. Um, and I, it was pouring rain outside, which doesn't really much much of the story, but it's just like it's gloomy. Like when you've got mm. food poisoning, it's gloomy. You're outside going, yeah, it's going to be. So I got to the track and I spoke to Christian, only Christian. I said to Christian, I'm not feeling that great, but if you could ask Bernie, no, I don't want to do the driver parade. I just need to get some fluids in if I can. And he said, yeah, no worries. Bernie was cool with that. So I just stayed in my room and tried to get some fuel in, get some energy in my, get some calories in because I'd have to do the race. And this is where the body's amazing because it, you know, it was, I was just starting to hold stuff down and I went to get ready to get in the car on the grid. So I'd taken the car, car to the grid. I got out. And not another team members knew that I didn't tell any of the team because I don't want like it's not their issue, it's my issue. I've got to deal with it. Um and Christian knew and like something in movie tell, tells, but I've told him, you know, just to keep it confidential. So before I'm about to put my helmet on, the body just goes, You're about to do something for two hours, aren't you? And I'm like, Well, probably in my head, yeah. So this got this there's two voices in my head going, you know, you're about this. so I'm just about to put it on and literally just on the grass, I'm like beside the track, I'm like going again on the grass. And I think <laughs> And all the Renault engineers and the, and the guys like, God, Mark's a bit nervous today. He looks a bit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, so I did. I was really sick before I got in the car. And then, yeah, and then sitting. The biggest thing is, is vomiting sitting upright. <laughs> that is not easy. So, next time, if you want to try it, just uh, pull the balaclava on, put a helmet on, sit up, sit in your chair, give it a go. <laughs> wise words great advice there Mark thank you very much either way it gets you three points in the bag uh, we'll move on from uh, sick chat to clip number two please Timothy here we go yep I think he's excited I was yeah, playing yeah. that in my kitchen yesterday and uh, one of yeah. my family goes, oh, who's that? He sounds pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's last night with my wife. Oh, <laughs> yeah. boom, boom. No, thank you. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, God, 2009 Germany. First yeah, win. your first win. Incredible. Yeah. And I think I started talk. That's like in the last corner because always with these audio clips, they're always delayed. But mm. that was... Basically, I started. I, I opened the radio in the last corner. I did it all down the front straight. I was in the first second, and I think I ran out of oxygen. <laughs> you had like a drive-through penalty as well for that, that for that race, didn't you? And yet you still, yeah, you still it won. Was, it was funny, like off the line, not a bad start, and then actually, and Ruben, Ruben and I have laughed about this in because I actually was because the way I had the mirror set up, which I did for my whole career, I was. I thought I actually can't really see him. So I'm sort of like moving across. I was actually moving across. And then what made it, made it look really, really bad, when I touched him, I completely shit myself because I didn't know how far up the side. He was so far up beside me, we touched and we basically just went, we, we, we pulled each other, we pulled so fast away from each other 
that it might look like we made huge contact. Actually, the contact was super light. It was actually just we blended across, and and it was more braille than I saw him. You know, touch like, yeah, shoot mm. myself, turn hard left on the straight, and then the stewards thought, yeah, give me a drive through. So we did a different strategy and still won, which was nice. Exactly. Well, and what a, a memorable moment that was. And it gets you three more points. Looking oh, good. Looking very good. Let's go for uh, clip number three, please. Here we go. I'm feeling going to get trickier. Mm, I think it'll be okay. Maybe. Here it comes. <laughs> the trouble is with you, Mark, that all your um, your team radio clips, they are so synonymous with some sort of big event. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we couldn't leave this out. There was always something kicking off, wasn't there? Yeah. So, yes, that's Malaysia, 2013. Yeah, and the notorious yeah. Multi-21. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we couldn't do the podcast without bringing it up. I do apologise. I'm sure you're bored of talking about it. But, you know, you had a young, hungry teammate. This happened. It should have been car two in front of car one, hence multi-21. It wasn't. How did you feel at the time? What was the relationship like with Seb after that? And how is it now? Um, well, I felt, of course, it was it was really disappointing in terms of we, we had a really actually a super fair briefing before the race that, you know, because we were on the back on the back foot against Merck that weekend. We thought it was actually going to be a really, really hard race for us to win. Um, and we got ourselves in a position to 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 be one two, um, having, to be frank, nearly sheltered Sebastian around some of the stops. To be honest, because Lewis was putting a lot of heat on him, and, and I gave him he had the, the more optimal laps, if you like, in terms of that. And then we ended up being down the road a little bit, which was nice. I think Merck was starting to run a bit lean on fuel, and and so we were about to close it off, and then all of a sudden, you know, it started to kick off. So. Um, little regret. I should have turned my engine back up and 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 fought it hard. But I just see my instinct. I'm just like, well, that's what we've agreed. Um, I want to race as fair as possible to the flag, um, which obviously said in his eyes had different ideas. Um, relationship now is very good with Sebastian. We get on really well. Um, it was challenging at the time, clearly, um, but we had a lot of. There was a lot of undercurrents, you know, whether it was from 09 in Turkey, there was some strategy stuff, Barcelona, you know, where there were so many subplots. Budapest qualifying lap where Seb, oh, it was my turn to go first. He went first, which pissed me off. So there's lots of things which still aren't in the media to this day, but um, that's just what it was. And and, and multi-21 was was a a snapshot of, you know, and Seb said that, you know, he was furious with, um, with Brazil the year before, I should help him out and whatnot. So... Is what it is, mate. Um, mm. Ultimately, we get on now. Um, it was more. I'd made my decision. I'd signed for Porsche by then. I was gone yeah. anyway, so yeah. I was. I was. I was out of there. Um, but um, yeah, it was. It was uh, fruity times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, you're doing pretty well, Harry. Should we move on to the final? Well, final radio clip. This and then, is your final radio clip before your bonus question. Slightly harder. If you get another question. three, you're looking to absolutely smash DC out of the park. So let's go for. Good. Clip number four. Here we go. Fantastic, guys. Not bad for a number two driver. <laughs> Punchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was another another weekend. Um, yeah, 2010 British Grand Prix. Um, yeah. So, yeah. We had some equipment issues in the build-up to that race. And, um, yeah, so I wasn't feeling best pleased in the build-up. But, um, yeah, got a brilliant start for once. And, um did the job and unfortunately Sebastian got a puncher of the first corner off Lewis because I might have went through the first corner a bit slower than I needed to. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that. Um, and I've got that car. I have. Oh, I, oh I, wow. I that car, yeah. So it's good. Uh, was that the um, the Grand Prix where I can't remember, but there was a post race press conference where obviously something had happened and you have a, a lengthy glass of water and then slowly smash it right down onto the table. That was the press conference. Yeah, that was the press conference after quali because I was furious. Oh yes, said got me by like half a tenth of qualifying, and um, I just said they should ask the team, yeah, whatever. So that was yeah, oh, that was that. Just... But uh, my head had quickly, my head was already in Sunday by that point. Yeah. Oh, I just love that it was the power move that got me. Okay, three more <laughs> points on that. You're looking good. Here's your bonus question. Now, this is where it gets a bit tricky for you. Um, how many points did you achieve in your final F1 season? And if you get within 20, you can have the full point. Oh, we've got Jesus. it. We've okay. got it. 
Um, 13. God. Tough one. It is a tough one. Yeah, like within, within 20, though, you could probably have a decent stab in the dark. Yeah, I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> it was not a great year. Um, well, I don't think it was too bad, was it? Um, no, I don't think so. You finished third in the championship overall. Yeah, so 170. Oh, oh, so close. So if you close. said 179, you could have had it, but you got 199 points that season. Oh, did I? Okay. Yeah, not too shabby. You're doing yourself an injustice there. I'm afraid yeah, I cannot right. give you the yeah. bonus point. But that does rack you up to a solid 12 points, which Ooh. puts you half a point below Brendan Hartley in oh. uh, fifth place. Not too shabby. Point. How did Don Nicolato style get half a point? Uh, because well, how did he get half a point? I, was, I think I might have asked him a question on his hair or something like that, and felt sorry for him. Oh, he would have uh, argued. Uh, he would have argued it for sure. He oh yeah, it. he he wasn't letting them go down without a fight. But uh, Mark Webber, thank you for playing Motormouth. Well done. No worries. The highlight of your career. Now let, let's switch our attention to World Endurance Championship. You drove for a great team, clearly alongside a certain Kiwi and Brendan Hartley, who's obviously been a guest of the podcast before, and Timo Bernhardt. How easily did you find that switch from? Formula One to LMP1 and what are the differences you can point out between the formats from a driving perspective? Mate, better than I thought I was I was in terms of enjoyed it more than I thought I would um, because I was the right age to be over myself egotistical, egotistically and just want to share as much of the success as we could as a team yeah. um, and that was down to uh, Timo was great because he was the endurance guy that actually you know, give us all the right medicine on how we should construct a the car and and sort of the methodology around you know being successful in endurance racing. Brendan was great on the tech side, um, you know, being young and you know the car was quite complicated. And I just did a bit of driving really, so it was pretty easy for me. Um, but I really enjoyed it. We had a good time. Um, you know, the team was brilliant in, in terms of its inception, in terms of you know building the team together, a lot of different cultures and nationalities. Yes, we had a great budget, but you've still got to go out there and beat Audi and beat teams which are, uh, are very organised. So, um, yeah, sharing a car is a big component of endurance racing. You've got to get on really well. You've got to be uber, uber transparent and you've got to be extremely trustworthy. Um, you know, that car is four-wheel drive. Um, Formula One is, is rear-wheel drive, obviously. That has a lot of power. The 919 hybrid, nearly 1,000 horsepower um, on its day. Uh, of course, you drive it at night. You have, you know, the, the envelope of the car is so different. It's a much easier car to drive in the limit than a Formula One car because mm. that's sports cars are. They have to be easier to drive in the limit. But it's still a big skill uh, to be able to do that, thread your way through traffic. And, I mean, all the big shunts we've seen are basically guys trying to thread, thread their way through traffic, which is a real art. Yeah. Um, and pretty similar to my F1 career, I never scratched cars. When I crashed them, I destroyed them. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well done, you. Uh, I did it properly. So, um, yeah, I didn't. A uh, little funny, well, it was a, not a funny story, but Brendan, going to the track the year that I crashed in, in 14 um, in Brazil, going to the track that morning, I'd take, I'd take it to the spot right now on the bridge driving up to the up to the track there in Interlagos. And Brendan said, no one's had a big shunt in this car yet. Oh. So I, mate. <laughs> Just don't even to say, say that. Why? And Timo and I want to kill him. He said, well, you know, no, but it's, like, it's true. Yeah, I know it is, mate, <laughs> but at some point it, 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 it probably will happen. We've got a long way to go with this program. And then sure enough, in the afternoon, I was in a helicopter going to hospital. So, oh, Christ. But great times. Uh, great brands. Obviously, Porsche, you know, exceptional record at Le Mans um, and a brilliant, brilliant legacy. We just played another small part in what is a tremendous um, library of, of, of brilliant victories and dramatic events that the brand has gone through at that, at that tough yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. No, it's a, such a cool series as well. Big fan of, of WEC. Now, listen, um, we're coming towards the end, so there's a few questions that we're really keen um, to shoehorn in. Um, one is um, about Lewis Hamilton. So um, we had a guest on the show, Connor Daly, the IndyCar driver, um, a few weeks ago. We were talking about modern F1 and the, the pros and cons of it um, and talking about um, the capability of Lewis. And, and was he as good as everyone thinks? Is he the greatest of all time? As we record this, he's obviously set an incredible record. 
record of, of wins, 92 wins, overtaking um, Michael Schumacher. But Connor Daly, one of the things he said was, you put me or half of the uh, IndyCar grid in that Mercedes and we will be as quick as Lewis Hamilton. Agree or disagree? Absolute bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might say that. As quick? No, I mean, yeah. There's a lot of guys out there who so give me that car and I'll do the same job. Well, they, they just won't. They won't do the same job. He is better than them. Um, and they're delusional to think that that's like that. I mean, it is. And it's down to there might be a lap in testing. Yeah, I was like covalent every now and again was there or whatever, you know, with Michael, Eddie Irvine. Yes, every now and again they were. But, you know, Roger Federer every now and again does serve a double fault, doesn't he? Or he does get beaten in a, in a match in round two somewhere as well, whatever. Consistently, these guys are on another level. They just, if it's raining, if it's a qualifying lap, if it's mixed conditions, if it's a short session, if it's a, if it's a tough long Grand Prix in Singapore, if it's Malaysia, if it's a heat, if it's whatever, they will find a way to graft out a win. Um, and I have a lot of respect for Conor Daly, um, but like me, he's not as consistent as these, as these guys. Just He's just not. Um, and they, uh, when I say they, it was Michael Lewis, whatever you think about the Jackie Stewart's, the Louders, the Pross, the, the Fangios, or, you know, the greats of our sport centres, I mean, Senna was, you know, he was probably the fastest, wasn't he? I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to know. I never raced him and I've, I've only spoke to people and worked with him, but um, he was extraordinarily quick. And, and was he quicker than Lewis? Probably yes, but um, was he was he more complete? It's, it's you know, mm-hmm. I use the analogy, yes, because we've all done a lot of interviews about who's the greatest and Lewis has obviously triggered a lot of thoughts on this, which is a very, very fair discussion to have. But it's like, you know, it's a World War II fighter pilot and you've got a guy flying, a, you know, an old Spitfire and a guy flying an F-18 now. It's just different. You know, you can't, the guys, what they did back in the Spitfires was extraordinary. They were going over there, coming back, not sure they're going to come back. And there's a lot of things which are similar to car racing. There's a lot of fatalities in, in and not, and not in any way suggesting that what the, what happened in the war was, was was competing in a car race. It's not. It's, it's, it's much more serious than that, and, and car racing is not at that level. But I'm just saying the consequences were, were a lot more real back then in the yeah. 70s. The guys were, had to be more precise, um, and the people that weren't as precise, unfortunately, they might have paid the full consequence on that. Um, the technology was low. Now the technology is high, you know. Um, was was a Jackie Stewart going to embed himself in the technology like he, like Lewis Hamilton does? Mm-hmm. Probably yes. We don't know. but the, or, 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 or vice versa. How would Jackie go at the Nürburgring? Uh, sorry, Lewis go in, in a tier on the Nürburgring? You can't that. make a direct <laughs> comparison. It's impossible, isn't it? Very, very challenging. But what we do know about Lewis is, you know, he is, you know, I mean, give me a weakness, any weakness that he has over Michael. Mm. I don't know what that weakness is. I'm happy to be challenged with it, but I don't know what that weakness, what that column is. I don't know. what doesn't select his teammates. Um, brilliant in all conditions, as was Michael. Um, Perhaps how, you could argue maybe he's he's got more of a calmer head than Michael now? That's right, yeah. yeah how often has he been to the stewards? Wheel to wheel. I mean, there's a lot of us that it was it was quite, you know, Michael could have been a bit unpredictable at times. Michael uh, Lewis is extremely predictable in a great way. Yeah. You know, he's going to push the boundaries to the limits. He's going to do it again. Like Leclerc last year, that was extraordinary with him and Monza. Lewis did everything he could through the kitchen sink against the Ben Ferrari, by the way. Mm. But he did what he could. And Leclerc was outside the limits. But Lewis, after the race, all fair, all good, you know, and, mm. and that was it. So he's extremely he has that little bit of pros woven in there too he's actually fair yeah. very fair guy wheel he's to wheel. the perfect blend of, of racing driver you know <laughs> so he is he is you know and i'm not here you know on on, on the lewis hamilton channel i'm just saying that the guy <laughs> hard to yes yeah. good. people bang on about that do you think do you think we would ever see some, you know, you mentioned Leclerc there and obviously Verstappen, two sort of teammate killers, if you like. You know, they, they seem, it doesn't matter who their teammates are, they they seem to outperform them consistently. Yep. Do you think we'll ever see them come through to the levels that and consistency that, that we've seen from Lewis? Um, I think, I mean, Charles could. Uh, I think that he's got that, just that little bit more composure than, than Max. Um, we know Max is, again, I mean, I, Max Verstappen is so good for our sport and he's 
all three of those guys are, 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 are why I still, by the way, I didn't watch a race on the weekend, but um, I still watch. I watch the first few laps and then it starts to calm down. And so, yeah, I watch it because of some of those guys. Um, and Verstappen is still, we still see that, 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 that sort of rush of blood and that the sort of uh, the, the, the composure factor is still coming. Um, and they will. But what's interesting on the record front is with the change of regulation in 22, mate, if we have a, a more spread of results, um, then those records are going to be hard to beat. Mm. Um, and that's maybe a possibility, but it's hard to put a budget cap on culture. You know, if you've got the right people. Ultimately, we saw Toyota all those years ago come with a billion euros, and yeah, they they they, they couldn't win a chook raffle. Yep, you know. So, mm. Yeah. Now, before we get on to our final three questions uh, that we're going to chuck at you, I just want to get your thoughts. Obviously, as an Aussie driver, I imagine you have a, a one eye on Daniel Ricciardo at all times. Um, what are your thoughts on him and his season at the moment and obviously moving on to McLaren next year? And then are there any uh, young Aussies we need to be on the lookout for? Really? You don't know about Oscar Piastri? Yeah. I mean, I absolutely do, but I was hoping you'd lead me there. <laughs> Good um, Daniel's been one of the best performers this year. I think he's driven really, really well. Um, and I still see it as a bit of a waste for F1, that he's he's, in, he's not at the front week in, week out. You know, we, we need those type of characters. Uh, he, he brings a lot to the sport. He's, he's brilliant on Sundays. Um, naturally, you know, is there another 10th in qualifying? There might be um, from someone else, but is he on Sundays? Wow, Daniel is his top draw. Um, and that's... You know, it's a real shame that that he's that. You know, I still wanted him to stay at a Red Bull, and I think that would have been some some great times um, in the last few years. And but I'm, I'm, I think the, rent, the 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 McLaren move, you know, with with the Merc in the back, could be could be a nice little move um, as long as they, you know, again go again. I think James James K James Key, sorry, is his first real car, big, you know, the big, you know, in terms of the concept. Um, Twenty one would be his his baby, so. Hopefully, they design a, a weapon. I know there's a lot of carryover from 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 this year. Anyway, it's pretty static to a degree, so they can't change a huge amount. But there'll be some things they can. <laughs> so, yes, I'm optimistic, mate. I hope that he can do a great job there. But we're still talking about on the fringe of podiums, you know. Um, and that's yeah, it is what it is. But I think I think we all know Daniel's capable of more. Mm, absolutely and then as we mentioned Oscar Piastri is uh, the next one to watch I suppose of Australian hot talent absolutely dominating the junior formulas and showing real good pace when do you think we we can see him in, in F1 and where do you think his chance will come if it will come yeah um, we had a great year in F3 as you say this mm. year he won that in his first season um, very calculated very measured it was a tough season for lots of all the guys because it was pretty condensed um, and he had a few you know, they all had different technical challenges here and there, had a few stewards things here and there as well. So ultimately, he did drive a very smart, clever championship and got the job done. Um, he's testing this Friday in the F1 car in Bahrain, which is awesome. He's going to drive the um, RS18, which will be a big moment for him. That's going to be his first half an hour, as I say, that sort of frame rate moment. So I'm really proud that he's going to go through that. Um, and then Formula 2 next year, so undecided which which team yet. Um, but I think that he's... he's um, got the eye of the tiger a real dark horse you know he's actually just you know he just he sneaks up on you just gets these results and he's like well you know it's not um you know the car's always straight comes back you know i mean touch wood again we just spoke about the brennan hartley story but he he's very he's very um measured mm. with how he how he goes about it and very analytical and i think that he'll he, he's got a very very bright future um because he's hard to ruffle and um, that's that's a great thing. That's a great quality to have to have that level of composure at, at this age, and the speed. You know, he's, he can he can dissect the race in his head very very well, and he executes on that well. Mm, so that's an exciting, huge new talent coming through in the next few years to add to the already incredibly young grid. I suppose that's happening. Um, okay, final three questions for you, Mark, and then we will let you go. Um, Tim, do you want to kick off with the first one? Yeah, sure. What's got you excited at the moment? Um, excited at the moment. Um, riding my motorbike actually. Mm. Yeah. What have you I'm got? Enjoying. Um, I've got a BMW twelve fifty adventure bike. Yeah, GSA. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's cool. I love taking that out. Um, and on the weekend, I'm in Austria doing some good stuff over there. So yeah, I've got some. Yeah, 
hobbies. I like my I like my recreational hobbies, mate. Um, they keep me they keep me uh, they keep it real. <laughs> and Oscar, of course, is you know. I guess it's it's exciting to see what what he's going to do in the future. Harry, oh, did you want a, did you want a, a racing answer? Or no, did you want a person? no, it could be anything at all. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, Oscar. I mean, some of the answers coming through is great. Um, I'm more excited about that than the current grid because I mean, a lot of those guys I race, so I don't really you know not excited about those guys too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's good to see the Charles of these worlds and, and Max and. Um, of course, and you know Lewis doing the record and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, and also MotoGP. I have not. I've been so bad this year of following that. It's been such a great year to follow it. I hear, but um, with Valentino not refiring and, mm. and, and Marquez out, um, I really haven't had the urge, unfortunately. Yeah, we need to get a MotoGP rider on the show, Harry. That's a priority. No, no. Uh, over we to need, you to, we need to follow it more. Um, if you hadn't of become a racing driver and gone on to achieve all you've done, what would you have done? Uh, probably, I did my plumbing apprenticeship. Oh, right. So, um, yeah, so that was pretty invigorating. Um, and then, <laughs> and yeah, so that was my backup. I mean, whatever, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, there, as you said, there was no plan B, I suppose, and then you no, don't, you don't so, need, you, you can't have no. a plan B if you're going to make it. No. That's um, right. I was very, very naive. I just uh, this has just got to happen. Um, and I did people's heads in. I made phone calls and I was very, very stubborn on that one until it did, unfortunately, or well, fortunately, but yeah. for them. Um, I don't know, mate. I would have I wouldn't have come to Europe. I mean the career wouldn't have got me over here. I would have I would have stayed in Australia and, and who knows what. Um, and probably I don't have kids, so I probably would have had some of those. Um <laughs> some of those pesky things. Had a normal yeah, increase my carbon footprint by having three kids. So yeah. I don't have I don't have any kids, so I can so I can do my carbon footprint now I like. Yeah, just doing your bit for the environment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, final That's question. Right. Final question for you, Mark, and uh, it is: What are you scared of? And this could be anything. We've had some weird and wonderful answers on this. Very. What's weird the answer. weirdest one you've had? So the weirdest one we've had a few, but I'd, I'd say Crofty was was up there. He's got a weird phobia of tea bags. We had another one who's got the same phobia as me, which is this fear of tiny, tiny, tiny holes um, that could. It just makes my skin shiver. Even now, I'm starting to feel weird about it. Um, See, one of my favourite ones was Sebastian Buemi being deathly afraid of sharks. Sharks. Because I just love the fact that he's come across a few in his in his life and in Switzerland. Freddie Hunt, son of the late great James Hunt couldn't even tell us what it was you got too choked so um, over to you yeah um, these have both been quite late later in my life I mean, I'm halfway now if I get to 90 I'll be happy um, so I was definitely not um, claustrophobic when I was young you know, I used to get in all sorts of, you know, tidy areas and cupboards and 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 boots of cars. I, my, actually, my dad used to pick me up from school. I used to get in the back of the in the boot of the car. He used to drive me home in the boot of the car. You know? So, um, I used to thought that was awesome. Now, I'm not. I don't know if it's because I've had so many racing environments where I've got all the gear on helmet, yeah. and I've got mechanics in there, and right. So, I'm not. I'm not big on tight spaces anymore, or getting oh. myself put into a position where I can't really move too much. Um, so that's that's a, that's uh, oh, that's pretty normal. I mean, a lot of people have. But the weird one is cotton wool. Whoa. Hang on a second. Hold on yeah. there. So yeah. cotton wool, take us through that. <laughs> so I don't like the tearing, like pulling cotton wool apart is a weird, <laughs> it's actually a weird thing. I kind of know what you mean. Yeah, it's just isn't it so bizarre? Like I can deal with a lot of things, and I have dealt with a lot of things, but actually, just the 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 the, the pulling apart and the feeling of of that weird, it's just just <laughs> that's bizarre. A, that's a how good you one. can hate something, you know. Like I'm not scared of snakes and spiders, and you know, I'm, there's a lot of shit that I should be scared of, and I'm not. But and I'm not scared of cotton wool. I'm not saying that. I just hate, <laughs> and if it's wet. You know, of course, it's fine. It's lost all of its firepower against me. It's gone. <laughs> the kryptonite has failed. Cotton wool in an enclosed space, and that is the Achilles heel of Mark Webber. Uh, it's, no, it's, it, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's I, called. It's I, called. I it's called Sid Sidonglobophobia, fear of cotton wool. But it's a very long word. I'm not pronouncing it right. But it's yeah. an actual thing. No, it's it's. I can I can do what I want with it, but just pulling it apart. I just. I mean, I can do it, but it's just like. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> 
I don't like it. Michael Jackson had it. <laughs> oh. Bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. You share the same phobia as Michael Jackson. Yeah. Now that's, now that's a dinner table conversation. Someone else must have had it as yeah. well. Come on. Uh, it's it's a very rare thing, apparently. Uh, only a handful of people around the world have oh, a fear. Shit, uh, no, I swear. It, it, it happened late as well. Like it's. I mean, I can do it. I could probably get some now. Yeah. I've got a Christmas thing. I, I don't know why I've got a Christmas thing. <laughs> I want to see this. It's just hanging around. Look, it look, looks look. like. Uh, oh, nearly, oh, nearly looks cool, but it's not. But oh. anyway. <laughs> What a way, what a way to round off um, the podcast. I love that, that's up there. Absolute insights there from Mark yeah. Webber. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the Most Mouth Podcast, for giving up your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to worry, uh, chat all the way through your career and more and get your thoughts on the latest happenings as well. Mark Webber, hopefully we get to chat again soon. Uh, good luck for the rest of what's involved in your year as well and hopefully uh, we'll see you again soon. All the best, guys. Take it easy and um, look forward to getting that MotoGP going too. Before you hop off, one final reminder to check out the guys and girls at Notice One, your new transportation solution for minor, mega and signature events anywhere in the world. Notice One simplifies the complex process of event transportation and provides clients with unrivaled service and support to ensure your event's transportation needs are fulfilled. Check them out today at motusone.com and if you tell them you found them through the Motormouth podcast, you'll get up to 20% off your first booking. Now, doesn't that sound good? Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review and until next time, you'll be listening to the Motormouth Podcast.